Man, thank you, Amy. Um, good morning, church. Very good. You're in a participatory mood. Going to hold you to that. Um, I want to begin by asking you a question. So, when was the last time that you were thoroughly surprised? Thoroughly surprised. Think about that for a second. So, it's not the most recent occasion, but one time that I was totally surprised was Christmas Eve 2009. It was a suitably dark and wintry Thursday. My wife and I, Ellie, had been married for a year and a half, so we were approaching our second Christmas. And the first one, we had seen nobody. We had done our own thing. We were establishing ourselves as a family, which meant that now we were in the throes of negotiating which house we would be at on which day. It was our second Christmas. This Christmas Eve, we went to a panto with my family. So my mum, my dad, my brother, my sister, my beautiful wife, and me. And we had great seats in the Theatre Royal, like really good. Like in the stalls, like in the front couple of rows, crammed in alongside thousands of other excited people in the thick of the action. Actually, for one of us, in the action. Because that's right. I had that seat. (laughs) You know the one, clearly. I was waiting for someone to say, oh, no, I don't. But, you know, maybe Panto's not your thing. Not a problem. You know the seat. I was the poor soul that they were going to pick on through the whole pantomime. I was squirted with water pistols. (laughs) Ugly, Mark. They joked. And when I tried to get my own back, and I, I, I used the weapons of Panto against them because that's what you do. Oh, no, he isn't. I lost because there were thousands of them and one of me. It's okay, I'm over it. Can you tell? Anyway, this ritual humiliation went on for a few hours or days or weeks, I can't remember. And then it got worse. <laughs> This year at the Panto, they had a ventriloquist, a guy called Paul Zerden. And at the end of the Panto proper, there was time for one last joke. And I was involved. I made my way from stalls to stage, and Paul Zerden put a mouth on me a little bit like this. I literally became a ventriloquist's dummy. He moved my mouth and made me say all sorts of stupid stuff. So keep that image in mind, and I'm going to turn now to the sermon that Johnny's actually given me to deliver in his absence. (laughs) That was a joke. Um, I like to think that I managed to retain some shred of dignity, or I would have, because when he got to the end of mocking me, making me say all sorts of stupid stuff, Paul Zerdin asked me, would you like to go and sit down, Mark? And I nodded my head, but my mouth said no. And he asked me, why not? And I said, in front of thousands of people in the Theatre Royal, I want to do my dance. I want to do my dance, Paul. Oh, the shame. What kind of dance do you want to do, Mark? I want to do river dance. The band kicked into an utterly inauthentic river dance ripoff. And I realized that in this moment, I had two options. I could stand there like a lemon, marinating in my wounded pride. Or I could dance. And so I danced. I went absolutely crazy. I have, I have lost no skill between now and then. That was what I did. It looked more like that then in my head, but there we are. 
The crowd went wild, obviously. I sprained my ankle. People I did not know came up to me and laughed in my face as we walked back to the car. I've not been that close to the front of a panto since. You can pray for me at the end. When was the last time that you were thoroughly surprised? I ask you that question because in our reading today, Jesus says some surprising, maybe even shocking things. He says some things that we're not used to Jesus saying. The Messiah is a homeless wanderer and his, and his followers can expect to be the same. Don't bother about burying your father. If you look back to say goodbye to your family, you're not fit for the kingdom of heaven. Ouch. Leading up to Easter, we spent Lent looking at the cross. And since then, Johnny and Amy have spoken about being totally surrendered and feeding on Jesus. And for the next few weeks, as we approach Pentecost, we're going to think about the way. In Luke's gospel, the first verse of the passage that we heard today is a pivot point. It's a significant moment in the story where things are different after than they were before. In Luke 9, verse 51, it, sa- it says that the time approaches for Jesus to be taken up for- to heaven and he resolutely sets out for Jerusalem. He resolutely sets out for Jerusalem. That's an important phrase in Luke's gospel. The language in the Greek, which I will not explain to you now, is, is significant language for Luke. But for the next 10 chapters, until chapter 19, Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. He turns towards Jerusalem in chapter 9, verse 51, and he gets to Jerusalem in chapter 19. And along the way, Luke keeps saying, while Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem, this happened. So he keeps reminding you as you read. And Luke chooses to show Jesus teaching his disciples as they journey, as they're on this journey towards Jerusalem. And this is significant because Matthew chooses to do it in a completely different way. In Matthew, you have five sections where Jesus sits people down and teaches them. A little bit like this, a little bit more of a classroom moment. But in Luke's gospel, he shows us Jesus teaching differently. In Luke's gospel, you learn the way of Jesus on the way with Jesus. That's the aim in this series as we walk towards Pentecost, to learn the way of Jesus on the way with Jesus. And this makes sense, right? After all, Jesus never asks anybody to worship him, but he consistently calls you to follow. And the passage that we've heard today comes at the beginning of this turn, and it makes clear the radical cost of discipleship. Now that Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem, rejection is in store. You can see it in the Samaritan village's rejection of Jesus, but this is only a pre-echo of what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Jesus has turned towards Jerusalem, and it's now in Luke's gospel that following him starts to get real for his disciples. And with that in mind, I want to highlight two things from the passage. First, Jesus makes three demands. And what I want to, what I want to highlight to you is that they are ridiculous. 
Look at the second one, just as an example. Can I bury my father, Jesus? No. Let the dead bury their own dead. What? That's not okay. Some of the most provocative responses to Boris Johnson's presence at a COVID-prohibited gathering came from people prevented from attending funerals, right? This is, uh, this, is as, uh, this is as out there in our culture as it is in Jesus's. There's no culture in which his response is not offensive. So what's going on in these interactions and these responses? Well, Jesus has turned towards Jerusalem, and he's teaching his disciples the way. And the first thing he does is make a series of intense demands. That's not an accident. That's not an accident. There is an urgency to the kingdom of God. The time has come for Jesus to be taken up, and something needs to change. Something is happening as a result of that. There's an urgency to the kingdom of God in Luke's story, and I want to suggest to you, in our world today. And Jesus' way is not one that holds out safety, security, and comfort in the ways that you're used to, or even in ways that make sense all the time. The theologian Stanley Halvas puts it this way, it's hard to remember that Jesus did not come to make us safe, but rather to make us disciples, citizens of God's new age, a kingdom of surprise. The triple demand here at the beginning of the disciples' apprenticeship alongside Jesus makes it abundantly clear that this way, the Jesus way, is different from anything that has gone before, anything they've ever done before. The way of Jesus is not the way of anyone else. It's not a way that they've walked before. It's not a way that they can achieve in their own strength. It's not a way that because they've been to church for decades, they already know what it looks like. See, you are called to be a citizen of God's new age, to be part of this kingdom of surprise. In the language that we'd use here at Trinity more frequently, you are called to radically pursue the presence of God, wherever that might lead, and whether or not you're comfortable with what it looks like, be it tongues, trembling, tears, tireless service, or t'other stuff. They all began with T. This is what we're about. This is what we're about here. We're about seeing the church on fire. And there is a fight for your allegiance. There is a fight for your discipleship. The devil does not want to see you living this way. Jesus knows this. And so he confronts would-be disciples at the beginning of the journey. Come count the cost. This is not a way that you've walked before. This will look different than you expect. You know, I've actually got a new ambition at the moment. I had a conversation with someone and they changed, changed, my, changed my thinking about this. My ambition is to be part of a normal church. No, really, I mean that. It's just that when I say normal, I mean a church that fits the description 
of the New Testament, a church that fits the description of Acts, not a subpar, powerless entity which is more interested in its own comfort than the coming kingdom. When I say normal, I mean a community of people committed to walking this way, even or especially when that looks weird, because God is real. And if God is real, God is going to be different than you expected. A church that doesn't fit that description is subnormal. Let's redefine normal, shall we? Should we have a new normal? Has that gone out of fashion? Um, A church that doesn't fit that normal is less than what Jesus intended it to be. Jesus turns towards Jerusalem and he demands a response. Follow or don't. Wanted to say that in a Yoda voice. Do or do not. There is no try. The triple demand at the beginning of the journey to Jerusalem is a salutary warning. Jesus is about something real. Following him is not for the faint-hearted, but thankfully he's the one that can bind up your heart and make you wholehearted. This is going to cost. That's the first point. Second thing I want to highlight to you is, again, in the first verse that we heard. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. I don't know if it stood out to you first time around, but there are two destinations in this verse. Heaven and Jerusalem. Let me paraphrase this verse for you. The time for Jesus to ascend to the Father, to return to the glory which he had given up to come down to this messy earth, had almost come. It was here. And so he set out for the site of his ultimate rejection and death. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross, but the way of the cross is the way to resurrection. It's a way of suffering, but even Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. You see, we are not here, you are not here for suffering. That's not the point, that's the process. Suffering is not the point. It's the process. Walking the way of the cross is actually what it looks like to pursue the power and the presence of God with all the promised joy and hope and peace that comes with it. Jesus' demands are so helpful because they jolt you out of thinking about a meek and mild Jesus and they get you to think again about what it means to follow him on this way, to follow him on his way. I've been reading T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. Be impressed. In the second of his Four Quartets, he says, he has this, uh, this really interesting um, stanza. In order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by a way which is the way of ignorance. In order to possess what you do not possess, you must go by the way of dispossession. In order to arrive at what you are not, you must go through the way in which you are not. This is T.S. Eliot at his most Christian mystic, I think. 
In order to arrive at what you are not, what are you not? You are not God. In order to arrive at what you are not, you must go through the way in which you are not. If you're going to arrive at Christ, it will mean giving up your life. If you're going to possess eternal life, it will mean walking away of dispossession of everything else. If you're going to arrive at an unknowable, transcendent God, a God who is actually big enough to be worth worshipping as God, it will mean accepting that you do not and will never know God well enough to completely predict and control and manage your life with him. You cannot be in this relationship on that basis. It's going to take faith, right? It's going to take faith. And in fact, I think this is what faith is. Faith is trusting the person without being able to define the parameters. Faith is trusting the person without being able to define the parameters. And I actually think that that's part of the point of this passage. I don't think that this is judgment on anyone that's ever buried a father. I think this is part of the point of the passage. You hear these demands in, the, in Scripture, but you don't know how the people in the narrative respond. There's no, they went away sad. There's no, they dropped their nets and followed him. There's, there's no indication of what people do in response. The demands just hang there. Why? Because they're there to confront you. They're there to confront you. They're there to drag you in to the Bible story on the Bible's terms. You're left wondering what Jesus is asking of you. What is he asking of you? I don't think this is easy. I think personally for me, one of the challenges that I have is around trusting God with my family because it matters so much to me that my wife and my children are okay. That going from white knuckle to open hand is a real challenge. I'd rather retain control so that I can ensure that God doesn't screw it up. How crazy is that? What am I learning? I'm learning that Jesus and doesn't fly. That kind of an addition is always subtraction. It's Jesus. It's, it's only Jesus. For me, for us as a church, I think, this is a moment in which God is calling us to give ourselves to him afresh, to commit to walking on the Jesus way and to, com- uh, to consecrate ourselves. It looks like faith. It looks like trusting God with every aspect of my life, especially the ones that I am most tight-fisted about, without the comfort blanket of defining parameters, without the comfort blanket of saying, yes, God, but it must look like this. To return to the panto, it was important. I think the way of Jesus is not totally unlike improvisational comedy of the kind in which I engaged when I danced. Why? 
The first rule of improv is that you always say yes. When I river danced on the stage at the Theatre Royal, I said yes. And while I honestly believe that I look like a total idiot, it was pretty funny and surprisingly joyful. It was much better than standing there. What's Jesus asking of you this morning? I think he's asking for your yes. In her memoir, Jill Weaver describes this kind of yes when she talks about coming to God and saying, the answer is yes. What's the question? Basically, yes. Yes to whatever God thinks I should do because he's obviously smarter, wiser, more creative than I am. Yes, because he knows the opportunities of peril lurking around the corner. Yes, before he tells me what I'm saying yes to. I say yes, then I listen with the intent to obey what I hear because it's all just a crazy big experiment anyway. Can you hear the joy in that? It's all just a crazy big experiment anyway. Yes, before I know what he's asking. There's not just a fight over your discipleship, I believe, at the moment. I think there is a fight for your joy in this. In my life, that looks like receiving an unexpectedly accurate and astonishing prophetic word in February, and then everything going wrong for three months. There is a fight for my joy in this. There is a fight for my discipleship. There is a fight for my obedience. There is a fight for my joy. The Jesus way is not a slog for a century, if you're lucky. And then you pop your clogs for an assessment of your faithfulness on the way. That's not the Jesus way. That's not what we sang, is it? When Christ shall come, what joy shall fill my heart? Jesus goes to Jerusalem because it's time for him to head for heaven. It's time for him to head for the joy set before him. The way of the cross is the way to resurrection. The way of Jesus is the way to arrive at the Father's house where the door is open and the welcome is warm. The way of Jesus is eternal life starting now because the only thing that will last is God and God's love and eternal life is living in God's love and you get to start that now. It's all just a crazy big experiment anyway. The only way to live it that really makes sense is to live like Jesus was raised and it matters. To live like the same power that conquered the grave lives in you. Trinity Church, forget COVID. This is our new normal. I want to invite you into a response. Um, And I want to ask you to do something a bit weird with me. And obviously, the only available answer to you right now is yes. So we're all going to river dance. Um, Take a minute and close your eyes. And we're going to use our imagination to help us to encounter and interact with Jesus.
Take a couple of deep breaths. Try and still your heart. By which I mean allow your thoughts to settle. Now, imagine that Jesus has entered this room. Notice where he is, what he looks like, and where you are in relation to him. What does it feel like to be in his presence? What is it that you've brought with you into this encounter? If you're not already close to Jesus, he's turning towards you. Jesus asks you to follow. Can you say yes? Yes, before he tells you what you're saying yes to. How does that feel and what gets in the way?